We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. When we eat together as a group, it releases endorphins, which are the feel-good opioids that encourage good behaviors. So at the moment, we're in a phase where we're not eating together. People are going to fewer Washington cocktail parties together. It's an important moment in in the 21st century when we ought to get together and break bread. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today, we have a great double episode of the show. Alex Prudhomme's new book, Dinner with the President, is a history of American food, politics, and 26 presidents, from George Washington's starving at Valley Forge in 1777 to Donald Trump's burger banquets. It was such a good time having Alex back on the show to talk about how food has been used as a diplomatic tool since the founding of the United States and to dig into the legacy of his famous great aunt, Julia Child. Also on the show, we welcome in Ali Rosen. Ali is a cookbook author, TV food host, and successful rom-com novelist, having published the hit novel Recipe for Second Chances. She is also the author of a new cookbook, 15-Minute Meals. On this episode, we talk about what makes a great 15-minute meal and how she writes her food-focused fiction. It's so fun having Alex and Ali into the studio, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Alex Prudhomme, welcome back to This Is Taste. Great to see you. Good to see you, Matt. Really fun to be here. I, I loved having you in. You're, you're welcome anytime. And, and you know, your journalism is is just some of my favorite. I think you blend food and history and, and pop culture. I love it. I love it so much. Thanks, man. Me too. Uh, <laughs> um, let's talk about your your recent trip to Washington. You wrote a book, and I'll link to the episode in the show notes. We talked about it extensively, and we're going to talk about more about Julia Child, your great aunt, on this episode. But I want to get a sense... Um, you presented your book to Congress or yeah. to members of Congress. Yeah. What was that like? What were you doing down there? It was surreal uh, and fun. Um, I was invited to um, the Library of Congress uh, to present the book to members of Congress, and I was interviewed by David Rubenstein, who runs the Carlyle Group, who's a real bookie and a real history guy. He did something that no one else has done before. He he ripped through the book. He had obviously read it carefully, and he's got a flytrap mind, and he remembered all these little details. But he asked me about all of the 26 presidents that I wrote about in the book, and it was kind of rapid fire, and I had to really be on my game. Yeah, I made one small mistake. Uh, <laughs> he asked me about <laughs> Warren G. Harding, who was probably one of the worst presidents yeah. ever, and I started talking about Herbert Hoover, who I actually think is a really interesting guy, and I caught myself... Uh, and it was kind of a funny moment. Um, but otherwise, he was really interested in this dynamic between the politics of food and the food of politics. Mm-hmm. And looking out into the audience and seeing people like Joe Manchin and Ted Cruz was really, mm. you know, bizarre but fun. Yeah. Did you get any uh, FaceTime with these members of Congress? Did they ask you any pointed questions? Did you break bread with any of them? I, we broke bread. We had dinner together. Uh, there were 200 members there. I signed 200 books, and my arm is still recovering. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a cocktail party beforehand at which the Library of Congress librarians had set up a really cool display of all the, 
the books and on the photographs and memorabilia that they have of various presidencies over the years. So that was fun. And in the, in the course of looking at that with a cocktail in my hand, I talked to members from both parties, which yeah. was fun. Yeah. Um, and everybody was in a good mood. It was kind of the holiday spirit. And, um, you know, there were a few over in the corner cackling together, but uh, <laughs> uh, who shall not be named. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was really a, a great experience. And it, the, the Library of Congress building is incredible. Oh, yeah. I really it's... recommend everybody go see that. It's just kind of mind blowing. And they have remarkable resources. And they were very helpful to me in the researching of my book, Dinner with the President. Mm hmm. Like when members of Congress approach you to talk about presidential history, do you get a sense that some of them, like in their eyes, are envisioning that that's their future? Oh, of course. You know, all those guys, I mean, that's the water they swim in in Washington. It was funny because my wife, who doesn't usually come with me on these trips, but she made an exception for yeah. Congress. <laughs> yeah. uh, she was noticing how everybody, the men and the women, Republicans and Democrats and independents, everybody was wearing suits and they were really kind of pumped up yeah. and they were kind of on display, even though this was a sort of an off-duty event. And I think that's just the way they operate. Everybody is, even if they are in a good mood and it's kind of the holidays and they aren't fighting, they are uh, on display in some, in some fashion. And so I think you're right that in the back of their mind, they're thinking, well, what's my next step? Yeah. You know? Like, what is, my, <laughs> what is my first state dinner going to be like? Exactly. Yeah. And those, and those things are huge. You know, a state dinner is a major uh, undertaking. It costs uh, anywhere from couple hundred thousand to almost a million dollars to put one on. It takes weeks of planning. Uh, It's high intensity, high pressure. The food has to be really good. And it's the culmination of diplomatic negotiations. And so there's a lot at stake and the world's eyes are on you. And I think they go to these things and they just think, wow, that could be me in the spotlight. That could be me calling the shots and doing the menu. Have you been invited to a state dinner yet? We talked about last time. (laughs) Sadly, no, but I'm still working on it. When I I was writing the book, I tried to get the Trump administration to invite me and they did not see fit to, but they only had two state dinners uh, before COVID hit. and then uh, since uh, Joe Biden has started having state dinners, he's had four so far. Um, first couple of years, he couldn't because of COVID. But in the last uh, year plus, he's had four, and he's pl- planning to have more in, in 2024. And um, I've been working on it, and I have a I have a connection in the White House. Yeah. Uh, but it hasn't happened yet. So I mean, listen, guys, you got to get Alex there. You're going <laughs> to write about it. You're going to come on the show and tell us about what's behind the scenes of the state dinner. No, it's it's a great book, and we'll we'll link to it again in the show notes. Um, but now let's talk about your great aunt Julia Child. Um, lots to lots to ask you about. Uh, lots to say about the Julia Child content machine has hit a peak. Maybe not a peak. I don't want to like say peak. That means that it's going to end because it, it's not. But just in your assessment, you know, you collaborate with her directly, um, and then you've since worked on some projects. What is our collective fascination in your great aunt? Well, the interest in her kind of ebbs and flows. And at the moment, we're in a, in a major flow. Uh, there are a lot of projects out there. Um, and I think the fascination is that Julia was a revolutionary. She came uh, into public consciousness in 1961 when her first book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, was published. And then in 63, when she got on television at WGBH in Boston, uh, where she uh, was the host of The French Chef. And, um, you know, within four years of that, by 1967, she'd won an Emmy and a Peabody. Uh, She was on the cover of Time magazine. 
Um, she had made a documentary about uh, a behind-the-scenes look at a state dinner, which was one of the things that got me interested in that. And she um, was at the vanguard of what is the really the American modern American food movement. Um, and so now she's remains relevant because she sort of helped to set all of this stuff in motion. She wasn't the only one, but she was certainly one of the leaders. And she's almost the patron saint of modern American cooking. And, um, you know, not only that, but she was there at the dawn of the television revolution when, you know, she started off in black and white when they were shooting on actual film because video wasn't invented. Mm-hmm. And then she saw it through the period when we went into color and it was video and there were higher production values. She was a double threat, you know. Mm-hmm. She was an amazing cook uh, who really knew culinary history and her technique. She was also a wonderful performer. And I think that the – so the third aspect is that she was this – charismatic, funny, intelligent, slightly mischievous person who took her cooking very seriously. Uh, People seem to forget that. Um, She really uh, knew her stuff and she inspired people. And it was empowering to many people, especially women. But um, that message continues today. And I think those ripples uh, continue to move outward. And as... uh, I mentioned we've had these recent uh, spate of uh, Julia projects. There was a documentary called Julia that came out um, in 2023. And um, there was the HBO Max show uh, also called Julia. Julia, right. (laughs) Somewhat confusingly. Uh, There was the film Julia and Julia. Which uh, you worked on. Which I helped uh, with, yep. And uh, there's now a traveling exhibit about Julia. And then, of course, there's Julia's actual home kitchen at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History in Washington, which I highly recommend you see. Oh my gosh, we did an event there for Koreatown, our last book, and it was amazing to check out that kitchen. I loved that. I love that museum. It's a tremendous museum. It really is. And the funny thing for me is I spent a lot of time in that kitchen as a kid. Isn't that crazy? I I, I look at it through the plexiglass, and I just want to walk in there, sit down, and have a glass of wine with Julia. You knew it. You knew it so well. What what aren't we? What haven't we seen? I feel like you're the journalist here, and you 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 helped um, your great aunt write um, her last book. What what have we not seen from this Julia narrative? Because you you say it's there's it's going to come back at some point. Yeah. Well, the, the the Julia you saw on television was the real Julia. Yeah. That's how she was when it was just the two of us alone in a room and she was cracking wise and, you know, uh, but asking me questions and sort of pushing and pulling all the time. And and that's the real Julia. But of course, you're not going to get the full person when you see her on television. Um, so she was a complicated, nuanced person. And it's really hard to capture her in a book or on a film or on a TV series, uh, like with any of us. I mean, she's got many layers. I think she had a few more layers. I mean, people have this image of Julia in their minds of what they want her to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of that is correct. Um, but some of it is their own fantasy of Julia. And when Meryl Streep played her in Julia and Julia, she said she wasn't playing the actual Julia. She was playing the Julie Powell character's romanticized vision of Julia. So it was almost like she was the the fairy godmother coming down to help her correct her recipes and, and mm-hmm. to get her life together, you know? Totally, it's such a different show than or movie than the show. And I wish the HBO Max show have dipped into season two. Um, and I have to ask you about that show because, you know, your great uncle Paul 
you know, you told me in the last episode you have a you have a real resemblance to him physically, <laughs> and I think yeah. your family members see you. They're like, oh, that's that's like Great Uncle Paul, right? You're part of his, you know, you're part of his DNA. How how did you think Paul was portrayed on the show? Do you think it's pretty accurate? Again. It, it's one aspect of Paul. Paul yeah. was also a very complicated person. He was the twin brother of my grandfather, Charlie. And I think David Hyde Pierce does a wonderful job uh, in portraying not only Paul, but spoiler alert, he also plays Charlie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so seeing him play the twins was really satisfying for me. And I helped to coach him a little bit uh, on that. And Oh, that's great. That was he fun. could like, look at you and just look at your mannerisms and try yeah, to pick well, some things up. Yeah, it was all done by email. But um, I, I've met him a couple of times over the years, and uh, he's just a lovely guy and he's a wonderful actor. And he did get uh, Paul's panache um, and his love of Julia. Yeah, it's a really um, it's a really fascinating show, and I like that these projects are all very unique. And it it just says a lot about our culture's interest in your in your great aunt. Yeah, I would just will caution people that Ju- the HBO Max show Julia is not a documentary. Oh no, uh, it's no. a it's a scripted drama, and and like The Crown and other shows. It's a real mix of fact and fiction. So even, you know, uh, good friends of mine ask me, you know, uh, questions about the show, and I have to correct them and say, no, actually, you know, Julia did not pay for the show to get made. No. Um, or, you know, Julia did not go out to a bar with James, Be- James Beard. Uh, you know, these are fantasies. I mean, they're kind of fun fantasies, but... Um, uh, if you want the real story, read my book. Read your book. Did, did they <laughs> did they vacation in Provence though? Oh yeah. And they, I mean, that's the that's one of the episodes I watched. Season two is like this great vacation home. Yeah. Judith Jones comes and visits. Is that is that, that historically accurate? Yeah, uh, it's accurate. And also that scenario is that Judith Jones is showing up to sort of say, "Where is Volume Two of Mastering the Art of French Cooking?" I love that. And Julia and Simka are kind of you know they're too busy having fun and eating and 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 you know gardening and and whatever. And uh, that's that's pretty closely based on the truth. I but mean, listen, Judith, Judith had to come and wrap their knuckles a little bit and tell them to to, to get on with it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of how cookbook authors work now. I yeah. mean, I, I've known plenty who have like blown off their deadline just to like you know quote unquote iterate in, yeah. in, in <laughs> nice locations depending on the advance number. Let's. I love the Judith Jones story, which is like so close to home here at Penguin Random House. And Knopf is your publisher, and like the way Knopf is pu- is portrayed. Um, you know, then, which is, is, is like, wow, like book editors lived a different life Yeah, back then. I mean, it looked really nice. And also to be able to go to France to like fetch a manuscript, which I think some of our editors have to go travel to get, get some things done, but it seemed pretty like lux- luxurious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, the madman era, essentially, exactly. you know, it was the sixties and early seventies and it was a different world. And, um, you know, when I was writing uh, my the sequel to to um, Julia's memoir, uh, and my book was called The French Chef in America, which is about when Julia and Paul came back to the States and Julia became our first celebrity chef, really, um, I discovered that while they were in Provence, the Rolling Stones were just down the street recording Beggar's Banquet. And, you mm. know, it's just, it was a, it's a wild and crazy time. And you couldn't think of two more opposite uh, groups of people than the Stones, and yeah. Julia and Simka. <laughs> I love that. That's a great. They were on, they were exiled too from yeah. from from America because or from London, England, from for tax reasons. Exactly. And and, yeah. and and recording that epic album. Let's. I'd love to. I didn't ask you this last time. I want to know 
do you have any memories of sharing meals with Julia? Oh, yeah. Like her many. cooking for you? I'd love oh, to hear yeah. about that. Well, so Paul and Julia never had kids of their own, yeah. so they treated my sisters and my cousins and me like surrogate grandchildren. So we had many meals with them um, up in Cambridge where they lived or in New York where we lived or in California uh, uh, and in Provence. Uh, Thanksgiving was always epic with Julia, as you can imagine. Um, and I, I was very lucky to have many meals, but... Going back to Provence, I think the there was a there was the summer of 1976 when my family went over there, and we were traveling around Europe, and we ended up at their child's little house in uh, Place Cassier, which is outside of Cannes, um, for a few days, and it was amazing. They took us out to these incredible restaurants, um, and. Julia made us a series of fantastic meals that are sort of seared into my memory. Uh, she made a, a real, quote-unquote, ratatouille, which takes a full day to make. You cook each of the vegetables separately, and then you put them together, and then you cook that. Mm. You know, and it's just this, the whole house is just full of these aromas that are just, you know, <laughs> amazing. Mm. Um, she made a bouillabaisse uh, with the local seafood, which was remarkable. Uh, but the one I really remember was that, so the summer of 76 was also the summer of the Montreal Olympics. And um, Paul was really into the Olympics, especially boxing. And um, they had this little tiny black and white TV they set up on a chair and we were sitting outside, it was very hot. And Julia was in the corner um, making this barbecue chicken. And it was a very simple meal. And she put it in this wonderful marinade. And she's sitting in the corner making this delicious chicken. Uh, and we're watching Teofilo Stevenson, the wonderful Cuban boxer, win the gold medal. Mm -hmm. And it's in on French TV. And so Paul is translating and doing the play-by-play -play for us. As they're boxing, and we're sitting out there on the porch, the sun is setting. Um, you know, we're drinking rosé, even though we're kind of kids. We're just having a great time. And... Um, it was just a magical night, oh, and man. and 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 that, and I can practically taste that chicken still. It was just so good. I love it. I feel like <laughs> in Mad Men, they did such a great job of of using television to timestamp episodes. I feel like maybe season three comes around and we have the scene in season three. That would be nice. It would be really yeah. cool to to, yeah. to, to, to check. Fingers that out. crossed, we get season three. Yeah, fingers crossed. Like check it out, HBO Max. It's Julia. It's 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 a great the the billboard in Times Square. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. it took I mean, a picture. <laughs> it, yeah, definitely. It was it was pretty they're, they're behind the show for sure yeah obviously your aunt is is a, a cookbook writer and and you know is, is thinking about food but these are very erudite literate people like they're very you know worldly so what do you remember about talking to them about things that have nothing to do with food i think it's important to talk about julia and paul is being very modern in their ways but also and being very worldly and thinking about politics uh what, what do you remember about them in that level yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, well, don't forget that um, they met during the Second World War uh, in what is now Sri Lanka. It was called Ceylon back then. They were both in the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the CIA. And, and so they lived history. Um, Paul had actually lived in Paris uh, in the 30s, and he knew Hemingway and Gertrude Stein, and he had become a real gourmet and a wine expert before that was trendy in this country. And he was fluent in French. And so then after the war, he takes Julia to France, uh, to Paris to begin with, and then to Marseille. And he brings her into his world, uh, which, is, which is France, it is food, it's wine, but it's also culture, capital C. Mm -hmm. He was a wonderful painter, uh, photographer, um, 
uh, a glass uh, artist, a silversmith, a woodworker, incredibly creative. And so they were just uh, happy as clams in Paris. They were going to museums. They had um, uh, expat friends, but they also had many French friends. They were members of a literary club um, mm. with people from around the world. And they were working, and Paul was working at the embassy while Julia was learning how to cook at the Cordon Bleu. And so they lived, and, and his job was to be a cultural attache. So his job was actually partly to bring American artists um, and, and people of note uh, to Paris and to France uh, to act as kind of soft power cultural diplomats. Mm. So culture, capital C, was their world. And so... Uh, you know, they would stay up late talking about Baudelaire, uh, or in Julia's case, reading cookbooks in French, <laughs> um, and experimenting, having dinner parties, going to dinner parties, going to, to events at the embassy. And so this was their world, and, the, and it really affected um, the rest of us in the family. I mean, I grew up um, with a number of sort of civil servants and diplomats in the family, and I was very lucky. And I think uh, we we would sit around the table talking about politics and and history and sometimes arguing about it, mm -hmm. which was really fun. And so for me, all of this stuff, you know, around food and wine and culture and politics, um, it's it's the world I come from. And so I I feel like I'm sort of I was destined to write about uh, the presidency and food and <laughs> and diplomacy uh, uh, because it's in my family genes. And so, um, uh, but Paul and Julia were very important role models for all of us. And they had these, would have fabulous dinner parties in Cambridge and you'd get the craziest assortment of people. I mean, you know, uh, people they'd know in the diplomatic service, uh, television people, cooks, some person that they met at the grocery store at a gas station that they just invited over for fun. Uh, How cool. You, you never knew, who, oh, you never knew who he would be sitting next oh. to. And and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Yeah. But that they were very chill and they just kind of yeah. went with it. And it, it was sounds really like they, they had a real love of people. They did. They weren't, you know, some, some you know, writers or artists or, or whoever creators are, are not. Like they're not people people. They're like ex introverts. But yeah. it sounds like your, 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 your relatives, your family are, are very extrovert. Well, Paul was more of an introvert, but okay. as a diplomat, he learned to be more extroverted. And Julia was more of an extrovert um, and just became more extroverted. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your own journalism. I think it's 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 cool that you have this family connection, but outside of that, you're you're just a reputable writer, and I, I love your writing and, and the, what you're working on, and uh, we're going to get to the Soup Nazi update. I, I hope you have one. Um, but first, you're working on a piece in the New York Times op-ed, and I'm not sure if it's going to run before or after this, but give us a sense. It's about food diplomacy, which I think is is in this day and age uh, when world politics um, you know, collide into our, into our life and into the news um, more and more with frequency. Oh, I guess my question is, how do you think about food diplomacy in 2024? Well, uh, some people think that... Uh so-called gastro diplomacy or culinary diplomacy has gone the way of the dodo bird mm. uh, in the 21st century when we, you know, in the internet age. Why do we need this thing that's been going since uh, 1874, which is when the first state dinner was held by U.S. Grant for King Kalakaua of the Sandwich Islands, now called Hawaii. Um, that was the very first state dinner. And um, some people uh, think that it's outmoded. Um, I take the opposite view. And so I'm writing this piece that's kind of a defense of mm -hmm. gastro diplomacy and an encouragement to our, our, our 
current president and future presidents to use food more intentionally. And this goes back to the old biblical days of learning how to break bread. Uh, and the you know the full meaning of that is it's it's much harder to fight with somebody once you've broken bread with them, and it's interesting because the Chinese have a similar saying that you know once you've eaten the food of others uh, you're much less likely to get into conflict with them. It's the same meaning, mm-hmm. um, and so in today's era uh, when we have these sort of vicious hyper partisan politics at home and dysfunctional diplomacy around the world. Um, the idea of getting global leaders together in person, not virtually, but it, it, there's something about that human connection that's so important. And what could be a, a better way than to do it over food? Uh, the dining table has historically been a neutral space where you put your arms aside, uh, you have frank conversations off the record, and you really get to know each other as human beings. And um, so I, I just think that, that this is something that um, has been baked into our DNA um, because it turns out when we eat together as a group, uh, it releases endorphins, which are the feel-good opioids that encourage uh, good behaviors. And so it's almost like we are wired to eat together. So at the moment, we're in a phase where we're not eating together. People are going to fewer Washington cocktail parties together. Uh, they're not brokering deals at over lunch in the in the Senate dining room. Um, and there's a lot of confusion about um, uh, diplomacy. Uh, I think now, not more than ever, but certainly it's, it's it's an important moment in this in the 21st century when we ought to get together and break bread. Wow, I, I love what your sentiment and I, I fully agree. And I have to think that, you know, with a little bit of wine, too, it's a little social lubricant in there. But breaking bread face-to-face sounds like we can hammer out a lot of our problems. I'm not trying to be Pollyanna-ish with this assessment. It seems like for real, like, let's get together and eat some whatever. Like, let's eat some – if it has to be, like, in and out let's eat some in and out It doesn't have to be anything, like, super fancy. And I think you're right. Like, if you show appreciation for someone's food as a member of an opposing political party – Maybe that's a compromise in in a little in a way without stakes. Like you don't have to agree in every policy, but if you like, you know, some chicken fried steak from that senator from the other part of the world, and you compliment them on their chicken fried steak, perhaps that can like thaw some of this division that we have. Hundred percent. That's what we should be doing. And um, you know, there is a great sense of pride in our regional cuisines. I, I, when I was at the congressional dinner the other night, um, you know, I had a number of conversations with people from parts of the country that I've never been to, uh, and it was really fun to hear their take. Uh, and uh, and then talking to David Rubenstein, who runs the Car- Carlisle Group, who's a billionaire, but it's also he's just like he's kind of an interesting guy, and and you know he doesn't drink alcohol and he doesn't like red meat, and um, but he's really into food, um, and. Um, there's something humanizing about food. Uh, and you learn a lot about the presidents by studying what they've eaten over the years. And that also the evolution of the American diet from George Washington and his troops starving at Valley Forge in 1777, about to lose the revolution, you know, all the way up to Trump's McBurgers and Biden's ice cream. Uh, that, that narrative arc is fascinating. And it's really a pocket history of America through the lens of food. And so one of my agendas with this book is to get people who think that that food and politics are boring, interested, <laughs> uh, kind of lure them in uh, with food uh, because it's something 
we all relate to. We all have to eat. Um, it's a very human impulse to sit down and break bread together. And so I hope that this, this current political climate where we're not eating together uh, will pass soon, and then we'll learn to once again uh, get together. You've got 200 members of Congress in a room. What are you eating? What is on the menu of this of this meal that you It was eat? a really, I was surprised. I was expecting the rubber chicken, but no, it was hmm. a really nice menu. They started with a, a, a tomato tart. It was kind of a French-inflected American mm-hmm. meal, which was kind of perfect uh, for someone like me. Um, uh, then uh, there was a um, striped bass entree uh, with lovely vegetables, and there was a salad. Um, and uh, then they had uh, Abe Lincoln's gingerbread cookies for dessert. Oh man! So and uh, some good wine. They're keeping it light. They're keeping it light. They're keeping <laughs> yeah, it like, no. like a working dinner. They want yeah, they don't want their members yeah. of Congress going into a food coma. There's still work to be done. Yeah. Are these obviously, or no? You're not obviously. Are they are they American wines? I think they were. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe not obviously. If you, you, know, <laughs> you don't need to be that. It doesn't, there's not going to be flags in the menus or anything like that. But Well, the menus were cool. And this is something that they, that they do at the White House also. They have a beautiful printed menu. And when people go to a state dinner, they get so kind of overwhelmed by mm-hmm. being there that they forget who they've sat with and what they ate. And so the tradition is you each sign the menus of the other people at your table Whoa. so that the next day you can see what you ate and who, who you sat with. Whoa, you got it. <laughs> so we did that the other can night. Can this at, invite at happen? Dinner. Oh, that's cool, that's yeah. cool. Can this invite happen? It's got, you gotta get to a state dinner and write about it. I can't, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. Yeah, just keep saying that. Yeah, exactly. All right, so we talked last time about your story in The New Yorker about a soup restaurant that's literally around the corner from our office on 56th Street. Um, that informed or inspired the character, the soup Nazi in Seinfeld. Yeah, have you got? Are you, you going to do the the follow up? I'm pro, I'm pro, I'm prodding you to do work. I'm sorry, but but <laughs> I, I hear you. I don't know what the follow up would be. I mean, it it did at one point when that Seinfeld episode came out. It did spur all sorts of crazy soup restaurants all over New York, mm-hmm. many of which have disappeared since then. But uh, that was kind of a funny moment. Um. And Al Yagane, the, the chef there, you know, he's a character. And um, I've been back once in a while just to check on him. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes he's there, sometimes he's not. But he's, he's really into what he does. I and he spends it. six months a year uh, traveling and, and exploring and finding new soup recipes and, and, and new ingredients. And so um, he takes his cooking very seriously. I love it. I want to I connect with him and maybe you'll maybe write the story for taste. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll figure it out. You're yeah. a busy guy. All right, on This Is Taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid-fire, fast and taste check. Alex, are you ready? The best breakfast food. Well, I, I've been eating a lot of heavy breakfast lately as I've been on the road. But So right now, uh, fresh fruit, yogurt, and granola <laughs> <laughs> with a lot of coffee. <laughs> Maintenance breakfast. I love it. Yeah. The best dessert. Best dessert. Well, one of my favorites is Julia's Tarte Tatin, which is an upside down caramelized apple dessert that mm. I love. And it's it's a, it's a fun thing to make. That makes an appearance on the TV show on HBO Max. Yeah. I believe so. Yep. Your favorite New York City restaurant right now? Oof. That's so tough. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I really still love Via Carota. Yeah. Uh, I, still, I, I still love the Old Faithful uh, Via Carota, uh, Rita Sodi and Jody Williams's uh, Italian restaurant downtown. Uh, this past summer, my wife and I uh, went to visit my Italian cousins in Rome, and then we went up to Paris. And it was the first time we'd been back since before COVID, and it was just so great. Uh, and if you go to Via Carota, you get a little taste of it. Yeah, a little bit of that mm-hmm. European style. I agree. It's a nice place. Favorite American fast food chain? 
Um, well, aside from In and Out, uh, I guess Shake Shack. Oh, okay. I know Danny Meyer a little bit. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun place, you know. Is there a president that you think would be super into fast food that we didn't expect? Well, you know about Clinton and you know about Trump. We do. Um, I think, you know, Obama has a reputation for being a very healthy and and, and sophisticated eater, but he likes a good burger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he was campaigning, he ate a lot of steak and, and soul food on the road. Yeah. Uh, and so... I think you'd be surprised that that Mr. Healthy Obama would uh, indulge once yeah, in a while. Yeah, good call. <laughs> Your favorite cookbook of all time? Well, it's probably one of the Julia books. Maybe uh, The Way to Cook, which mm-hmm. is the big colorful one. I've used that more than the other ones. Um, but the one that's just been reissued, the French Chef Cookbook, which I highly recommend to people, which was... Uh, the recipes from the first season of uh, The French Chef, uh, it's full of really good recipes. And because they were made for half-hour TV shows, they're all pretty quick and mm-hmm. they're pretty, pretty simple and straightforward. And the reissue is just a, it's a beautiful volume that they've really done a, a great job on. That's so cool. Can we watch the original episodes somewhere? You can watch them uh, in various places, yeah. Uh, they're they're online, available streaming. Streaming um, services. Amazon, have... yep. Yeah. Um, Yep. Is there like a tip to to watch the the old shows? I mean, I, I'm sure some are better than others, or some might be feel like a little bit more prescient than others. Is there a favorite of yours? Not you know, I love the ones that Julia did with Jacques Pepin. Oh, an old me buddy too. Of mine, and oh. I think that the dynamic between the two of them it's so much fun because they're both really good cooks. They're both strong willed, uh, and the creative tension between them is so. Um, inspiring and dynamic and funny, you know, yeah. and 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 you know they're just giving each other a hard time, but they they're they're best friends and it's uh, and the food is fabulous and the, the the conceit to the show and to the book uh, is um, a, a given dish like a hamburger, for example, his way and then in her way, yeah, uh, and, and the and the and the and the the patter between the two of them is just hilarious. How about her and James Beard on camera? I feel like they had a pretty cool. Yeah, dynamic. you know they tried that. Yeah. Um, and I saw the the test pilot, which was never aired. Uh, uh, I saw it in a at a WGBH archive. Wow. And you know this, it was sad because James Beard, James Beard, who trained as an opera singer and was a wonderful performer live, he just wasn't very good on television. Yeah. And Julia kept trying to goose him, and he would stare down at his food and kind of mumble. And yeah, he didn't have that zip that you need for television. Yeah, it's a, it's a very unique art that maybe doesn't translate from a lot of things. Yeah, uh, she she really did. Um, she was a magnetic performer on camera. Yeah, and and her ignorance was hmm. actually a, a benefit to her. She had no idea about TV. They didn't even own a television when they first. No way. It. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it took a while before they made enough money from from the book sales that they finally bought a little TV. <laughs> Is there a moment in Julia's life when she realizes how famous she 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 was? I think so, but she was a, actually a very modest person. Yeah. She didn't like to toot her own horn, as she would put it. <laughs> and um, so there must have been a moment when she realized when you're walking through the airport and people are coming up to you and asking for your autograph and trying to carry your suitcase for you. And she would insist on carrying her own suitcase. And, and um, you know, uh, every time you go into a restaurant, you cause a sensation. I think there's a moment where you realize, wow, this thing is really catching on. But, you know, she was on the cover of Time Magazine in 1967. She'd already won these awards. And it, it's, by then, I think she realized it. And yet behind the scenes, she was having a tough time uh, getting the ideas that she wanted mm-hmm. to, to air uh, through the WGBH process. And so, 
You know, for example, she thought of doing a, a series about her cooking with other chefs. And they, their response was, well, people don't want to watch other chefs. They want to watch you. Well, of course she was right. Uh, and I think it was a good 10 or 15 years later when she did Cooking with Master Chefs, yeah. where she won her second Emmy. And that, those, those books are fantastic. And, you know, she put people like... Uh, Lydia Bastianich uh, uh, and uh, Emeril Lagasse. She helped put them on the map, mm-hmm. uh, put them on television, and get them get them going. And so, again, this is why she's kind of the patron saint of the mo- modern American food movement. She also revolutionized travel food television too. Yeah, by taking shows on the road, yeah. doing like a reportage style, which certainly um, was more costly. And I'm sure she she kind of felt a little bit of of a pushback from her from her producers for that. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah, and one of those was taking her cameras into the White House, uh, into the White House <laughs> right. kitchen specifically, which had never been done before. And that was in 1967. Um, and so actually, when we were in Provence with the childs that summer, she had just come in from Washington from doing the White House. And you know, maybe that lodged in the back of my kid brain that I remembered it years later. But <laughs> um, mm. you know, she was really riding high, and she loved it. She just loved it. And, but she didn't take her celebrity that seriously. She loved teaching yeah. and learning about cooking. I love to hear that. Your last one, your favorite sandwich. Well, as a guy who spends time in Maine, I have to go with the lobster roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I'm a guy, I like uh, the, the colder lobster roll with the mayo. Other people like the hot lobster roll with the butter. Um, uh, but I, was, I don't know I who was, those people are. I know. I was raised on the on the traditional New England lobster roll. Um, but then, of course, uh, there's always, a, you know, like a BL, BLT or, uh, or uh, a tuna melt. I mean, I love those kind of sandwiches. So, <laughs> What a good choice. I, lo- yeah. I love the lobster roll coming in this conversation. Yeah. Alex yeah. Prudhomme, thank you so much for joining This is Taste. Such a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Matt. And bon appétit. Allie Rosen, welcome to This Is Taste. Good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. I um, love a lot of things that you do. I, you know, you do television. We'll get into that. Um, but I also am so impressed that you have highly acclaimed, highly visible projects in both cookbooks and fiction. How yeah. the fuck do you do that? I don't know. I'm really tired. <laughs> also, the publishing schedule. I mean, it's, you know, you write stuff and then it. some things take years and some things take mm-hmm. a lot. So it looks like it looks like I'm really productive right now, but catch me in a few years. Let's start with fiction. Uh, recipes for Second Chances. Amazon reviews. Let's go here. Allie wrote a magnificent rom-com book with great visuals, love, and dealing with relationships. Definitely a good read. I absolutely devoured it. Magical setting amazing story and a great second chance romance. These are written within like a day of each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was fiction is wild. I mean, it's very different from cookbooks and it's 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 just been delightful to kind of see a different audience and a different type of reader. You know, cookbooks are a certain type of reader, but fiction is very different and and romance readers are very different. So, yeah. I, you know, I'm very lucky to kind of straddle that like women's fiction romance space and so they're very voracious readers yeah so they they show up fast no it's cool and and how did you get into writing fiction because i i've known you for a long time and i knew you strictly as a television producer on air and a cookbook author but how did you like transition in that world i just during covid was burnt out i think in the way that a lot of people were and i needed a creative outlet that wasn't something that i'd been doing so i had just finished my last cookbook, Modern Freezer Meals, and I, 
I just, I had an, you know, I had a conversation with a friend that kind of turned into this idea and I started writing and I was like, oh, I'm actually really enjoying this. So in a pretty short span, I just kind of wrote this story and I was like, I think this could be something. And I sent it to my agent and she was like, great, I don't do fiction. So I really had to <laughs> start completely yeah. over. I mean, it, it's a totally different space. And of course, it has nothing to do with your following or what you've done before. It's really just like some, you know, editors have to read the book and like it. So it was sort of, it was a very humbling experience to be like, oh, nothing I've done in the past will matter to this. People just have to like the book. That's really, really well said. I mean, there's no social profile no. or whatever. I mean, you have what you have a great social profile, but it doesn't matter. So I'm like interested. You you said you just you started writing. Had you taken fiction courses? Had you outlined? I mean, are, are you a voracious fiction reader? Well, You're what's your story? You're gonna make me sound like such an asshole when I say no. I just started writing. I mean, I am a voracious fiction reader. Great. And again, another thing to make me sound like an asshole. Um, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> this is a safe no, space. Yeah, exactly. This is a group of readers. I'm guessing. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fiction reader. Um, and especially during COVID, I really stopped watching television because I was just home all day. So I went from being somebody who would read, you know, a book a week to reading two or three books a week. And I just, and I was reading all of these, I call them happy books, but I mean, just books that I knew ended well, either romance or fiction that I kind of knew the ending or like, um, you know, cozy mysteries where like, you yeah. know, it's all going to end okay. And I, just the more that I read them, I was like, maybe I could do this. And I think a lot of people have that feeling of like, oh, I have a story that would be interesting to tell in this. And the more I kind of noodled on it, the more I was like, I think I could try this. And I didn't really think it would be anything. I didn't tell anyone. I mean, I didn't tell my husband even until <laughs> I sold the book. I mean, I just was kind of like, who wants to hear about their friend's novel That's you know so like, cool like i would probably do the same i mean i feel like you gotta have these side projects yeah. and you don't want to like become the like great next great american novel person right and like yeah. it might be bad i mean you don't know you know it's i think there are some people who work on their craft as a craft and then there are some people who are just like creative people who are always creating something so you never know i mean the number of things that i have created that never saw the light of day i mean shows and things, you know, so you just kind of work on stuff that feeds your soul outside of the things that are money-making projects. And some of the things that feed your soul turn into money-making. Yeah. Projects. Okay. So recipe for second chances, like it clearly has a food theme. So yeah. let's get into what it's about briefly without any spoilers. Yeah. What's, what's, what's going on here? Yeah. So it's about um, a woman, Stella Park, who is, she works at a food magazine. Um, she's a recipe writer. So, you know, something that, something I know something about. And um, she goes to the wedding of a friend. She has a friend who's marrying an Italian guy and her friend is Indian. And so they have this big Italian Indian wedding in Umbria. And while she's there, she runs into her ex from 10 years ago. And the story is kind of going back and forth in time of like what went wrong then and mm -hmm. how it is now. So there's a lot of food in it because not only is she a recipe writer, but it's set in Umbria. So it's really kind of just like a little romp of an escape love story, you know? I'll link to the show notes. I love it. I can't wait to read. I'm going to check it out for sure. And I want to know Umbria. It's a place I've always wanted to visit. I was doing a, a taste travels in Puglia and our, our head guide was uh, from Umbria and was oh. like all about it. And it's like, she called it like cool, wild Tuscany. Yes. <laughs> what, why Umbria? It's cool. I want to go. I've never been. I fell in love with it. I mean, I, I just think it's so underrated. It's so much less expensive. I mean, I think exactly. people are like, oh, I'm going to go to the same 10 places that are, I'm going to go to Amalfi. And it's like, okay. Or, I mean, I now go, we rent a house in Italy in different random parts of Italy every summer. 
And it is so much less. Everyone's like, it's so fancy. And I'm like, it is so much yeah. less expensive to rent a house in Umbria or Liguria yeah. or, you know, Montemorano. Like, Emilia Romagna, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, then sort of anywhere else in the U. I mean, anywhere else in the New York tri-state area yeah. where I live. I mean, the plane tickets plus the house is still less expensive. So I just felt like Umbria is one of those magical places that people in the U.S. don't know as much about. And so I wanted to share it because I think sometimes, I mean, I read because I want to escape. I want to learn about yeah. new places. And I mean, again, if you're reading a memoir or a biography or history, you're learning about history. But I think in the romance women's fiction space, you know, what you're mostly learning is kind of a place, a time, emotion. So I just wanted to bring Umbria to people. So is Stella going to have another another romp, another another chapter? Sadly, my publisher does not like series. And so Stella oh. does not get another romp. But you know, a different woman named B gets her romp in my next book, but she goes to Ireland. So, ooh, Ireland, oh, yeah. underrated food We're scene just, for sure. Oh my god, yes. I mean, that's yeah. that's another thing that sort of just shocked me as I went to Ireland a few years ago, and I was like, huh, like I'm not really expecting to have any great meals here, and I had some of the best seafood of my life in Ireland, and I was just shocked by that. And now one of my best friends lives in Dublin, so oh, yeah. Ireland is now very close to my heart. So yeah, so I guess I'm just gonna write fiction where people go places and I just get to think about food in other countries. Is that book done? That book is done. That book comes out May 7th and I'm now working on a third book. Oh, so. well, smash the pre- yeah. pre-order. Yeah. I love <laughs> Alternate it. Alternate endings. So yeah, Ireland has got had some good contemporary fiction as setting and also good. Um, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, listen, like Irish writers, I mean, yeah. I think like of the Booker nominees this year, like nine out of 10 of them were Irish. I mean, so it's like, I'm not writing great literature about Ireland, but I am creating a fun escape time. I love it. So let's talk about television. How did you get into television? I know many listeners will know you from uh, from your work in, in New York, uh, or your New York listeners, at least. You know, you're on television all the time. Yeah, I my show, Potluck with Ali Rosen, is in its 15th season. And I got that show. You know, I worked at a website that we don't have to name where I was doing tons of video content. I mean, I started my career in news production and then I realized I don't care about the news Does enough. Does it have feed in the title, the name of the website? No. Okay. No. All right. Well. <laughs> I know. I'm like, we can talk offline. I mean, you're so cagey. I, mean, I love it. Okay, let's keep it. Let's keep it. I don't want to give them a shout out. Yeah, but um, good. They should not be mentioned. Yeah, yet. they don't get a shout out. Absolutely but, not. Um, I... You know, I, I moved from news into food, and I'm I'm very grateful for the fact that I was doing tons of content. I mean, that was sort of in the era where people were like, wow, we can do video on websites, and we can just make videos all the time, and they don't have to be good. We just need content, content, content. But I learned a lot, and so then I, I pitched my show to NYC Life, which is, you know, for anyone who's not from New York, it's sort of New York has its own public television station, um, and really it's all about the culture of New York. So some night, you know, they do food content, historical content, cultural content. And so I'm kind of in the food. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, my job is just to interview chefs and writers about food and learn. I mean, my job is just to learn. Yeah. So it's it's really been a total dream. And I hope that they never cancel me because I will do it forever. I mean, you're, me. <laughs> you're like part of the wallpaper of New York yeah. City food media. No, you are. And you have, you're great at it. I love your show. Thank you. I've caught it online. I've caught it on television. Um, have you been tried? Have people poached you away to go to like the other other spots? No, I mean it's interesting. You know, I had um, you know if people are like, "What does this girl do forever?" But I mean, I've I had a show that I've wanted to do forever um, called Route to Table, where we we really pitched it around where we wanted to show sort of a single piece of food from start to finish, mm -hmm. um, like you know starting with like a fisherman and then end up in a restaurant and. 
Nobody ever bought that. Yeah. Show. So, I mean, I certainly. It sounds expensive. It's very expensive. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, so, yeah, no, you know, I have lived in my little public television bubble for so long. Cool. And I'm, yeah, it's it would be interesting. I don't know. Yeah, if somebody ever wants to make that show, let me know. Well, you know, public radio and public television, it, got, it has a real spirit and a real journalistic backbone to it. Yes. You're not dealing with SponCon. Oh it it really is I never some have of the best to vote work. anyone off an island. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I, it's like, it's so delightful because, I mean, really, you know, I have 23 minutes and 46 seconds to talk to people about really the nitty gritty of what they're doing. And in television, that is so rare. Like, if I want to have a segment about like what is masa yeah I, I mean i can talk about that for 7 or 8 minutes i mean which just is sort of unheard of in any other television format so i i feel i feel so lucky to be in public television i yeah. mean yeah like we don't you know you don't have the same budget in public television but you have yeah, you have the ability to tell stories yeah. in a way that very few people get to do. So, Have there been any recent segments you've have taped that you want to call out, you know, chefs or anybody in New York who really excites you? I love cookbooks, as yeah. I know you do as well. So, I mean, I'm always so thrilled when I get to have cookbook authors on. I mean, and, and especially cookbook authors when they come from out of town and, yeah. you know, the timing. I mean, we had Rick Martinez in last season um, from, you know, his book. Yeah. Um, and I just, I adore his entire energy. I mean, he just like, I feel is one of those people who makes the world happier and better. Um, so, I mean, I loved, I, I, I loved having him in. I, you know, I, I, I loved having Leah Kanigan for her book Portico about, yeah. I mean, cause I'm Jewish and I love Italian Whatever, food. Um, yeah. So it's like, she literally wrote a book about Roman Jewish food. I was like, this is everything. It's truly me. one of my favorite books from last year. She's been on the show and I've yeah. called it out. It's amazing book. It's love just that book. a fantastic book. So yeah. I, I feel like, especially when I get to have people like her, um, or I had, you know, the authors of the, um, Shalom Japan, people who had a book, Hello Japan. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it, it just, it's so special to get to talk to people in a way that I think a lot of cookbook authors don't get to do as much TV unless they are famous, you know? So, yeah. um, it's special to not only be able to have them on my show, but also give them, yeah, like seven or eight minutes to to do a recipe, talk about the origins of their book. I mean, you're so lucky. I mean, with a podcast, you can do that. But with TV, it's very rare. I know. It's a really different medium. We got many more coming in. And you called out two or three of our authors here. So yeah. appreciate that. You have good <laughs> taste in books here. Thank you so much. All right, Allie, I want to talk about your cookbook career. But first, Charleston, South Carolina, you grew up there. And I'd love to get a sense of what food was like in your household growing up. Yes. I mean, my household <laughs> was... Um, a lot of Southern food, you know, my mom's from Rhode Island and my dad is from Charleston. So mm. we had quite a mismatch of <laughs> cuisines there. Um, seafood though. A lot of, oh my God, so much seafood. I, you know, it's funny because Charleston has become this immense culinary destination. And at the time that I was growing up, Charleston was really, uh, I'll just put it politely, it was not, you know, yeah. it was, it was um, Southern food and then a smattering of other things. I mean, we had people referred to as the ethnic restaurant. It was Italian slash Chinese. Um, and then it was like a really big deal when a Chinese restaurant opened by the mall. I mean, Charleston just in the last 20 years has completely exploded in a way that I don't think anybody could have predicted. And it's amazing now because a lot of these, you know, chefs that are sort of known as Charleston chefs, um, a lot of these cuisines like barbecue that are now really present in Charleston just were not yeah. there when I was growing up. So, I mean, we had a lot of seafood. You could get shrimp and grits everywhere. There were roasted oysters. I mean, a lot of those mm -hmm. things, when you look at low country cuisine, 
that is all true, but kind of the wider like net of Southern food just did not exist in Charleston. And now you we've become a catch-all city for it because there's so many tourists that any type of place can open. So. I love South Carolina barbecue. I love I love yeah. South Carolina hash. Yes. It's like one of my favorites. And... Oh my God. It's so good. But it was never, you know, it's interesting. Like I when I was growing up, there was maybe one barbecue restaurant that was not in downtown. I mean, it's yeah. sort of far out. And most, I mean, if, if you want a barbecue, it's like if you were doing a trip to the upstate or sort of going outside of the city, that's where you could get barbecue. And mm-hmm. now, I mean, it's funny, you look at lists of like the best barbecue in the South and a bunch of them are in Charleston. And I'm like, this is so great for us. I mean, yeah. we love it. You know, I'm heading there in a couple of weeks. So I'm going to report back on the show, if not already, about my trip there. So yeah, I mean, home team, I, I love Lewis's. I yeah. love, I mean, Rodney Scott, I mean, does not need any more press. No, Rodney, we publish his books. <laughs> you know? He's a great, I'm going to catch up with Rodney when I'm down there. Yeah. So. I mean, he's the loveliest, but I mean, it's, it's the number of like really like high level, like best in the nation barbecue spots yeah. that are now in Charleston is sort of insane. But yeah, I mean, Rodney is from Lexington, South Carolina. Like yep. he's not from Charleston, but now Have he's- you been out to his spot in Lexington? I, you know, I did many years ago. I mean, this is sort of going to date me, but there was many years ago when there was a uh, an event called the Big Apple Barbecue in yeah. New York. I don't know if you remember that. And yeah, I sure. met Rodney there and he was like, you have to come, you know, when you're in Charleston. So one, I I drove up and went to his place. I mean, before he really, not to be like, oh, I saw him first, but before he really, really blew up, it was, um, yeah, he's he amazing. Big. No, it's, it's cool. Well, we'll talk more about Charleston later on the show. But let's hear about this cookbook idea. It is, or not idea, this cookbook. I mean, the idea is what I'm trying to say is is kind of out there. And I mean yeah. that with all compliments because <laughs> oh, yeah. I think you've executed a book that I think many people have probably pitched, but they've never quite been made. We've got 30-minute meals. Rachel Ray was famous for those. And yeah. of course, we know 30 minutes is a great time frame for making dinner. You wrote a book about 15-minute meals. How yeah. the fuck? Like, is it possible? <laughs> it, it, it genuinely is possible. I mean, the reason... I wrote the book was because I started to realize like, oh, we can actually do this. I mean, I think that there are certain assumptions that people make, especially people in food, of things that add flavor and things that must be done. And therefore, we do not go around those things, you know, like we do not go around onions when we want onions, you know, like you have to caramelize the onions. And um, again, during, I guess COVID was a very inspirational yeah. time for me. I mean, my son and I, we, I mean, we were so bored and he couldn't go to school. So we started doing these Instagram lives where we were like 15 minute meals and we'll see if we can make it oh, in a day. Fun. And yeah. And I mean, just cause I mean, I, I had nothing to do, you know, he's now eight. So I mean, at the time he was five, I mean, it was just a nightmare of being home alone. And so we kind of came up with this idea of every day, like, let's come up with something we can make in 15 minutes. And I was sort of shocked at what you could do in 15 minutes, as long as you were willing to set aside the notions of like what should be done. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of that would be like, you know, I mean, I wrote a book about freezer food, so I love frozen things. I mean, frozen vegetables are actually picked at peak and flash, flash frozen. So yeah. They're actually in some ways a higher quality than what you can often find fully, in grocery stores. So, I mean, using pre-cut frozen vegetables, great. We also live in this kind of golden age of ingredients. I mean, I'm sure as you know from your books, I mean, you can get gochujang now, yeah. no matter where you are in the country, in a way that you could not 10 years ago. You can get tamarind paste. You can get miso. You can get so many ingredients that just were not readily available and add so much flavor. So like at a time where you used to caramelize onions, it's like, okay, but if you added anchovy paste and fish sauce and, you know, 
chili crisp and all of these things, like you can add a lot of depth of flavor yeah, with definitely. a lot of these ingredients that take no time. And so if you take advantage of faster cooking, you know, proteins or pre-cut vegetables or even just vegetables that take less time like bok choy and snap peas and, um, you know, mung beans and things that just don't take a long time. And then you put in ingredients that have a lot of flavor, but are It's not. really smart. So we're, I, I'm getting a sense, and I want you to walk us through, like, give us your best pitch on your 15-minute meal. But yeah. I'm getting a sense there's no ovens involved here, or very few. Yeah, the we're, broiler only. Broiler only, and then it's mostly stovetop, mm-hmm. and it's mostly medium to high temperature. So yeah, it's a lot I, of high temperature. A lot of high temperature, which is great. Like, I love my walk. We talk about it a lot on the show. It's a great way to cook food in yeah. 10 minutes. Okay, so... Take us through the 15-minute meal of our dreams that I am going to buy your book. I'm going to do this at home tonight because I want to make dinner in 15 minutes because I've got to watch three seasons of Slow Horses because I (laughs) am catching up on this great show. I don't want to spend time cooking. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where everybody is. It's like we all want to cook for ourselves, but 30 minutes is actually a really long time. Like that feels difficult. So, I mean, I would say like the easiest things to make, as you sort of alluded to, are like the rice bowl, the things in a wok. You know, you take ground, I mean, ground meat is one of like the greatest gifts to humanity. You know, like take some ground pork, put some fish sauce and soy sauce in it, throw in some snap peas and frozen peas and put it over rice and buy that minute rice you can make in the microwave. I mean, that's a seven minute meal, you know? I mean, so there's a lot of things like that. And then there's a lot of stuff that I was just really surprised about. Like, you know, one of my favorite recipes is like um, a gingery chicken and rice soup. Well, if you take coconut milk and instead of peel, I mean, ginger, you don't have to peel it Mm -hmm. if you're, I mean, so throw a full thing of ginger root, the full thing of garlic No need to like nick your fingers up with the peeler. Correct. Like throw them in your blender and blend it up and then it's done. And then you just brown some ground chicken and put in whatever vegetables and whatever rice you want and bam. But that's going to have a ton of, and I think that recipe also has fish sauce. Like that has so much flavor and you didn't really do anything. So, I mean, I think it's, it's not that I don't love a a braise or something that takes a long time. It's just, there's a lot of flavor that you can get by, yeah, blender, wok, broiler. I mean, and a sharp knife. I mean, you have those things and it doesn't have to be as complicated as we make it. And I think we get into these mindsets of like, oh, well, it has to be a certain way or this has to include, you know, a certain ingredient or we have to, you know, present it in a certain way. And it's like you can have a lot of similar flavors for things, but just do it in a faster way. I love it. So I'm going to put you in the spot because I think jars are definitely part of this equation. So many jars. So (laughs) your go-to pasta sauce. I'm just putting you on the spot. Yeah. I mean, Rayo's, I guess. I mean, (laughs) I, I hate... It's not bad. It's not a bad. So, I mean, I, you know, I. I had it last night, in fact. I I mean, again, I'm going to sound really like, I mean, I I live right next to the Union Square Farmer's Market. So there's ugly tomatoes, like they have sauce. So, I mean, that's what I buy most often. But Rios is dope. Yeah, that's the best of like widely available. What about your favorite marinade in a jar? Oh, my favorite marinade in a jar. I don't do a lot of marinated jar. You know, I I do, I'm like the person who like gets a lot, I eat a lot of ramen, but I throw out the packet. Um, Mm. So, yeah. You use the noodles, but you throw out the packet. Yeah, yeah, because I feel like, unless it's like a packet that's just like soy sauce and sesame oil. I mean, yeah. Okay, Allie, what is the biggest time waster when cooking? The biggest time waster when cooking, I think, is chopping things. I mean, and and chopping things with a dull knife. Like, that has been the most amazing thing to watch. When I was writing this book, 
I had, I mean, with all of my books, I've had people recipe test. Um, like, re- like I literally will post on Facebook and be like, who wants to test recipes? Yeah. So it's not food people. It's just people yeah. who are home and cooking. And um, obviously with this book, I was like, okay, I want you to time yourselves and whatever. And it was interesting, like anything that required chopping, that was where the range of the recipe mm-hmm. really shifted. So, I mean, I, I really tried to reduce the number of things that would have to be chopped in a recipe because that, yeah, people don't sharpen their knives. And um, a sharp knife is a much safer knife. And it also just yeah, take, it's time consuming. So yeah, I would say chop less. So chop less. <laughs> use like more. your appliances or yeah. just go whole. Yeah. And frozen vegetables yeah. are amazing. And there's just a lot of vegetables that you can use that you don't have to prep, you know? Like, I mean, snap peas is one of the greatest examples. I, I, it's so, bok choy is another great example. Like you got cut, you know, you chop off the end and then it's there and it cooks in like three minutes. It's I mean, great. So why don't we use that more? You know, no. why so, is everyone making broccoli when they could make bok choy? Bok choy is great. Okay. So let me ask you, we are in like early January. We're like heading into our big cooking season. Yeah. First off, what bores you the most right now in the kitchen? Honestly, the thing that bores me the most is people trying to make food look pretty all the time, like use a pretty napkin and a bowl and take that like giant bowl of brown delicious slop and eat it. Like, I (laughs) I mean, I just like, I'm sort of sick of that, you know, like it's not, everything is not for Instagram. Like it should taste delicious. Yeah. And we're talking about also, you know, something that's maybe protein rich, you know, if you're figure fat or or less carb or I mean, whatever your dietary choices are. And like, maybe we don't need it to look like absolutely perfect to like hit those dietary marks. And you don't have to like buy parsley to sprinkle on top of it just so it looks better. Like just have it be ugly and eat it and enjoy it. Okay. So what excites you most in the kitchen right now? I mean, I think really the access to ingredients and high quality ingredients. I mean, I I just think it's it's amazing. Like whenever I go to Charleston, I always go to my parents' local Harris Teeter because I'm sort of curious like what's in there. And it's just amazing to me that like at any grocery store across the country now, you know, you can get incredible ingredients across cultures and cuisines. And I mean, what that opens up for people is remarkable. And then even if you live in a place where you can't get that, get it shipped. I mean, shelf-stable ingredients are a two-day ship away. So, I mean, I'm sort of amazed that people don't go out of their comfort zone when there's such readily available ingredients. Agree. And it's just kind of fun. Yeah. Like buy a few things online and try them out. Right. And see if you like it. And maybe you won't, but you might discover, like there's a few ingredients that I'm sort of obsessed with that I feel like I've made other people, like tamarind paste is like one of my like great favorite things. And it's so sour in the best way. It's so sour. Yeah. And it just, you don't need to add much more to it. And so it's, it's kind of amazing to me when people will look at a recipe like, I don't want to buy this one ingredient. I'm like, but it's one ingredient versus like eight spices that yeah. you would buy. Like, just buy the tamarind paste. You'll yeah, love it. I love it. Okay, so you've got fiction on the horizon. So you got this May release. Yeah. What about on the cookbook side? What do you want to work on right now? What are you thinking? <sighs> thinking I'm going to take a nap. Yeah, yes. no doubt. I Maybe mean... <laughs> there is nothing. Maybe you want to chill. <laughs> I do. I mean, I think cookbooks are kind of my first great love. Like, I am a voracious consumer and lover of cookbooks. So I don't think I would ever say that there isn't something else to come. But I, I am really loving doing the kind of books that um, are easy for people. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's I, the, the great, the only great thing about social media is that... I, <laughs> the single yeah, thing that is okay I hate with social media. everything else about it. But I do love when people 
write me, tag me, show me what they're making and just say like, wow, A, a with 15 minute meals, it's just been such a delight because people are like, oh my God, it actually is 15 minutes. But the fact that you can like bring a little piece of joy into people's life is really special. And I'm sure you've felt this way when people cook from books you've written. Yeah. Like you just feel like everybody's lives are so complicated and you're sort of bringing like food is a thing that brings people together. It makes people happy. So I don't know. I, to me, it's like finding other ways to kind of I hate the word hack, but like, yeah, like, you know, sort of give people ideas to make their lives a little easier while not compromising on the flavor. I mean, I think that's Into it. special. So yeah, that would, I mean, something in that vein would be next, whether it's, you know, more 15 minute meals or it's something else. I mean, my, you know, Modern Freezer Meals was a book that I had to really fight to publish um, because everybody thought, you know, freezer food is boring and um, but I'm sort it's of, it's not, it's not. And I mean, I, and again, it's like, it, it's just a great way to make your life easier. So that's, yeah, I will keep I respect trying it. to do that. I love it. Okay. Um, this is taste. We ask us about the discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Yeah. Ali, are you ready? I'm ready. The best fruit. A summer peach from South Carolina. Peaches are so up and down for me. Right. You have to get a good one. That's why it has to be from, from South, South Carolina. Carolina. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The worst vegetable. Uh, I don't know if I can say that. I mean, I love all vegetables. Are you in the pocket of a lobby? Come on. I'm a, I mean, I guess beets. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They're like lower tier for me. Yeah. The best dessert. Uh, just like summer strawberries with whipped cream. I sense there's a like, there's a theme. I'm a fruit kind of gal. Yeah, you're a yeah, fruit. I'm a fruit gal, yeah. Your favorite New York City restaurant right now? I, I Yeah, I mean, this is so hard for me, but I, I just, I've been going to Fox Face Natural a lot, which I know feels sort of like everybody said that, but it's, no. I love Dave Santos. Call it out. It's a great spot. Loro, I am still angry about yeah. Pete Wells' review of Loro like 10 years ago. And so the fact that he got three stars for Fox Face Natural just makes me so happy. Yeah, Dave so. Santos, I uh, love to have him on the show. He's somebody who I've kind of crossed paths with over the years. And yeah, Loro was really like an incubator of ideas yes. and talent. And so underrated. Yeah. And I just, it, it was, it was like, it just, it was so good. And so, I mean, Fox Face Natural is also so good, but it's, it's what he's been doing forever. So watching him get all this praise has just I been I keep thinking delightful. about that Hunger Games character, the Fox Face character <laughs> yes. with that name, but I, I don't know. I know the name, I don't know, but it's the, okay. the restaurant, great. Cool. All right. Your favorite American fast food chain? Popeye's. I mean, I'm from the South. I love that. How do you eat the biscuit? It's a trick question. Just eat it. You eat it reverse. Flip it over. <laughs> Why? Seriously, topside Ooh, down. The okay. way it hits your tongue is better. Just saying. Ooh. I like to say that when I think listeners may recall I've said that like three times. You're going to get a text from me at some point like Try in the it. following months. Being Flip like, it. Being like, oh my God, I uh, did it. Your favorite cookbook of all time? Just all of Dory Greenspan's cookbooks. Oh, just the canon of just the Dory? Ca it's just, she's so reliable. Like, there's no yeah. other person where I'm like, I'm going to make this and it's going to be perfect and everyone's going to think I'm amazing even though it was Dory. Have you been to her apartment in Paris? I've never been to her apartment in Paris. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, like, okay. I, I, would, wanted, yeah. I feel like a lot of people have been to her apartment in Paris. I like to pretend like she's my best friend, <laughs> but she's not in reality. But I just, I love, I mean... I, I mean, I adore her as a human, yeah. but I just think her recipes are amazing. No, she's really, really great. Um, your favorite new cookbook discovery? Well, I mean, Portico. I mean, I think we were just saying. We were talking about Portico. Yeah, Let's move on I, to one other one that comes to mind that you just like, wow, this yeah, is. Yeah, that was great. I mean, I love Shabbat by Adina Sussman. Yeah. I mean, again, needs no introduction, but I just, I've been cooking from that a lot. Your favorite city outside America to visit for food? I mean, Rome. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a basic bitch that way. It's okay. I mean, it's a great city and <laughs> yeah. kind of underrated in yeah. some ways for the food, obviously. Yeah. I mean, the food, it's just you can get, it's, yeah, it's perfect. 
a cuisine you would like to learn more about? I would really love to learn more about Korean food. I'm not just saying that for you, but I, I was supposed to. My husband and I were supposed to go to Korea for our 10th wedding anniversary. Oh, man. Um, and then we didn't end up going because even though we the COVID was sort of over in 2021 or whenever it was, that Korean government, basically, if you landed and you had COVID, they would isolate you for two full weeks. So we were like, well, we have three kids. We can't do that. <laughs> we can't be isolated. For Smart move. Weeks. I'll tell you a little yeah. story. I went in 2021 in the fall and we had to get a government waiver. Yeah. And so when we landed, we were required to take a special taxi. So they like funneled yeah. us out to special line taxis. And we literally went to a, to this like very intense clinic for a test. And you better believe it. If we were testing positive, they were putting us away for two weeks. And yeah, it yeah. was not so, the best way to enter a country. Correct. Yeah, uh, so we made bad. the right move. Yeah, so we made the right move. But I'm still just dying. I'm. I'm. I, I mean, I think in New York, Korean food. I mean, obviously, as you have seen over year. I mean, it's just exploded here, and I, I adore yeah. it on every level. And I've just, I would love to see it in person. So that's really. That's my next dream trip and cuisine that I, I hope you can make it there. I'm going in a couple weeks and, and we got a little book Korea World coming out. I was April. gonna say you got, you got some stuff coming. Got it. You got more Korean things coming. Just got the videos. copy today. I just saw it for the first oh, time. Yeah. It's like a, such a special day. Yeah, it was interesting. It, I, it's amazing. I'm so happy with it. Um last one, your favorite sandwich. I just like again, basic. I love a like caprese with prosciutto on it, like that. Or like just butter and anchovies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just all the sort of basic Italian. What's the bread sandwiches. choice? I mean, I love a rustic bread. I mean, my, my favorite bread is the miche from um, She Wolf Bakery in, I mean, the God, what a market. place. But oh, it's just like so good. So I, yeah, that it's like I have that miche and then yeah. get like the Riverine Ranch buffalo mozzarella, a good summer tomato and some prosciutto. And like, I'm in heaven. That's it. It's like yeah. August for you. Yeah. I'm, I'm just dreaming of summer. Basically. Yeah. What can it be summer? Always. Ellie Rosen, that was really fun. Thanks for having me. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 